0: Welcome back. It's such a joy to be back here. We needed that break. We needed a little bit of uh, a slower pace in the summer. I hope you found it refreshing. But I also pray that fall finds us eager to reengage engage in equipping our leaning into what God has to teach us from his word and, and his good purpose that he means to do in our lives through what we learn. Let me uh, pray to open our time and then I'll introduce the series we're starting and then get into today's uh, lesson. By the way, did anyone, did everyone get the handout? We have those in the box in the back of the seat uh, or in the back of the auditorium. That's familiar for those of you who've been here. So let me go ahead and lead us in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the blessings of knowing you through Christ and being the recipients of your great salvation. Thank you that you have done everything to bring us near to you so that we could call you our God and you call us my people. And you've opened to us an avenue for prayer to seek you in any and every circumstance, to seek your throne of grace, especially in our time of need. Thank you for the psalms we're going to look at today, and for this whole uh, section of the Old Testament we're going to go through in this course. Uh, We thank you for the treasures of truth and of wisdom, uh, and of resources just by which to know you and to draw near to you as our God, and to understand Christ and what he's done for us. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, your glory, and that you would transform us through what we see even today. Give us a hunger to engage more deeply and more fully with your word in public and in private. Give me clarity and faithfulness in unfolding these things and give us all alertness. This is an earlier hour than we are used to meeting um, for the last couple of months, but we pray that you'd please give us a zeal to learn and to uh, live for you. We pray all this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So. You probably have seen that we are doing the second part of our Old Testament survey last fall. If you were here, you were with us as we walked through the first half of the Old Testament. Uh, This fall, we're uh, going through the second half of the Old Testament, the last 21 books of the Old Testament in 11 weeks. And what we're doing in a survey is a very high-level overview of each book uh, of this part of the Bible. We're going to look at each book's contents uh, the theology, the structure, how it fits in more broadly to the Bible and the, the grand story of redemption in Christ that the Bible is telling, and some, some thoughts about application in our lives. Uh, it's very high level, so we're not dealing with at all with all the detail in each book, but what we want to do is um, kind of whet your appetite to continue engaging uh, with Scripture on your own. Now, I want to say that we you've, you've probably heard we've announced in the past that we recently have started a subscription for the whole church for this app called Dwell. It's a, Bible, a really good Bible listening app. And so um, one of the things we can do in Dwell is make like custom listening lists. And one thing Christy did this last week is she set up a, a listening list, a daily listening list for the 11 weeks of this course. So if you start tomorrow, it's 77 days. And about 20 minutes a day, you can listen through this, basically second half of the Old Testament. So I consider, I would urge you to consider that if you're, if you've already signed up for Dwell, you can just go open the app and you, I, I think it's pretty easy to find the uh, the listening lists. Uh, I'm not super familiar myself, but I, I looked on there; it was pretty quick. I found it pretty quick. So, and you can uh, talk to me if you have any trouble finding that. Um, But what we're doing is, uh, again, a survey of the Old Testament. We want to, really our goal is to stimulate you to to more deeply engage with the Old Testament and to find more edification from it. I want to know, does anyone have any history in your educational background of taking a music appreciation class? anyone take any music appreciation classes? Okay. Um, So what is a music appreciation class? Like what are they doing there? Yeah, so overview you deal with history uh, of music, maybe different eras of music, so you can identify different things. You learn maybe about instrumentation. You might learn about uh, things like uh, like melody and harmony and counter melody and rhythm, and you might learn things about um, like dynamics and tempo. All these little things that go into music, and if you haven't studied music in that way, and you start learning about some of the stuff. What's the idea? Why is it called music appreciation? Is that when you've kind of had your eyes open to some of these elements, you're not an expert, but you're being equipped to more fully understand and enjoy music for the rest of your life. Because you're learning how to pick things out and go, oh, there's, it was just this massive noise and maybe I liked it or I didn't like it. That's kind of all you could do. But now you can sort of appreciate the layers and the elements that are going into that music. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do here. This is kind of an Old Testament appreciation course so that when you're doing your own private bible reading or we're reading the scripture in public here in our gatherings or you're hearing a preacher taught in public we're in some text of scripture some place and if you've tried to read through the old testament you probably the experience of disorientation like this is this is vast wild sea of narrative and law and prophecy and poetry and it can feel very can feel lost like what's the point of this why am i here why is this edifying how could this be edifying to me today the more you learn about kind of this this orientation it'll help us to gain benefit from wherever we are we learn the forest better we're better equipped to to see the trees more clear see what's going on and to pick out the things that kind of what god is doing in this part of the scripture wherever we are so that's kind of the goal of this of this series um it, it's also helpful you know in a series we go book by book so we're going to see at the same time on the one hand we want to see the unity of the biblical storyline that centers on Christ and his redemption. But as we look book through book, the cool thing is, too, we get to see diversity. We get to see the different ways that each book contributes to that, that story and that grand sweep of redemption. Because the books are very diverse in terms of genre, like literary genre, what, how they're, how they operate, the content they teach. But they're all telling essentially the same grand message, and they certainly don't contradict each other. They're unified because they all come from the same divine author. So we want to appreciate both unity and diversity when we look at at Bible survey. So that's kind of what we're doing in this course. Uh, Any thoughts or questions about, of course, if you've been here last year, this isn't new to you, and we've done these in the past, but any other thoughts or questions about what we're doing with this Bible survey course? Okay, Uh, let's, let's move into our first lesson for this. Uh, Series is on the Psalms. We left off on Job last year, so we're picking right up in the Psalms. And uh, I want to ask you, just to kind of get the juices flowing in your brain, uh, if you have a a way of taking notes, maybe even just write down answers to this. If you were going to be, don't don't read too much into this scenario, so like if you're going to be imprisoned for life or you're going to be stranded on a desert island or something like that, and you could bring with you three Psalms for the rest of your life, Which ones would they be? Take a moment. And if you're like me, this is like a torture to try to answer a question like this. You're like, ah. But just what what three come to mind relatively quickly that I'd really want to have that one with me? And you can write down an answer. And I even ask, does anyone have one, you know, one, like, favorite psalm that you go, oh, yeah, I got to have that one. Yeah, Sherry, I saw that. 119. Psalm 119, yeah. So that's well you're going for economy there, because you get one song. you're like, I'm gonna pick the biggest chapter in the whole Bible by like at least the factor of two. So it's this long uh, what do you love about Psalm 119?
1: Oh goodness, everything. I really do. I, I don't
0: know. It's a wonderful celebration of the God's law, of God's teaching yes. and a life God's devoted God's to the, the the word of God to great something. Yeah, one of the one of the one of the highlights certainly of the psalter. Any other? Any others that stand out to you? Yeah, Paul. Uh, Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 51. Yeah, and that's a great Psalm of confession. That's probably the clearest example of Psalm of of penitence and confession, um, and so very powerful um, sort of e- equipment for how we relate to God in view of, of our sin. Uh, one who's who has a, a a soft heart over his sin. That's a great Psalm too. Of course, I'm never gonna say that's that's not a good Psalm, right? <laughs> but those are two particular like like well known highlights. Psalm. Yeah. The Psalms as far as
2: blessed. Yeah. Someone is is in the Word. Stay away from these type of people. Yeah. Psalm 1 is uh yeah, and
0: we're gonna see in a moment. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form kind of the entry door into the, the Psalm very, very intentionally. And everything Sherry likes about Psalm 119, Psalm 1, it kind of Anticipates the fuller discussion of the, the the value of the law of the Lord. Someone's about that kind of this wisdom context of how to live your life. Um, I, I saw um, Didi Dee Dee. Psalm twenty three. Twenty three. Yeah, this, the Lord is my shepherd. The uh, great Psalm about the shepherding care of the Lord through the valley of the shadow of death. I'll have one more. Blake Psalm thirty four, because it talks about
2: how the Lord withholds no good thing from those who believe in Him. Yeah.
0: Texas yeah, Psalm thirty-four, great truths about uh, him not withholding any good from his people. How to taste and see that the Lord is good, and that's 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 a great one too. Uh, those are those are wonderful psalms. So it doesn't take long to start. If you've been reading the psalms, you spent some years in the psalms, you can go, wow, there's uh, there's so many wonderful ones. And there's also, if we're honest, there's a lot in there that we aren't too familiar with. I, I I've read the psalms many many times, and I still I'll read one and be like. I don't think I've. I don't feel like I've ever read this before, and something will hit me like, "Wow, I want to. I want to gain familiarity." There's so much room to grow in gaining familiarity, owning the whole psalter like we own these few that we really love. Can you imagine if you knew it all that well and you just could say, "Oh, number thirty-eight, I love it because of this or that." So it's just, wouldn't it be great to just own that that book of of prayers? And that's really what they are. Um, their there, one author has called them a collection of model prayers and songs that give, give believers words to say in prayer and worship. Uh, they are our prayers God has given us for us and for our worship. It was written as the hymn book of ancient Israel, uh, but it's inspired. It's part of the inspired uh, word of God. It's Christian scripture, so it belongs rightfully to the people of God at all times. Uh, to, to claim as our own. Certainly there are elements in there that, that make sense in the in the historical context they're in, but there's a universality to how God wants his people to be able to use the psalms. Um, a note about structure. Um, if you've read the psalms, you may, it may seem at first blush like it's just this random collection of songs just thrown together, and someone just said, ah, we like that one too, let's throw that one in. And it's sort of, it kind of can uh, seem like there's no real design in the structure of the psalms. But if you... Kind of examine it more carefully, we can detect a little bit more structure than, than first meets the eye. Uh, first of all, there are some clusters of psalms that you can see that are sort of topically arranged or arranged sort of by, by, by author or by, by use. One of the most famous examples is Psalms 120 through 134 are called the songs of ascents, like, like ascending, because these were pilgrim songs that the people of Israel would sing on their way up to there, they had three annual pilgrimages up to Jerusalem for the the feasts that God had given them. And these are sort of Jerusalem-centered about going up to Zion and worshiping God. Um, you have clusters of psalms that are kind of by author. There's a lot of Davidic psalms in the first uh, 72 of the psalms. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, so you have those clusters. Uh, Paul mentioned Psalms 1 and 2 they really seem together to form. A lot, of, a lot of interpreters have recognized that they form kind of an introduction to the Psalter, which is, by the way, just another word for the Psalms, the book of Psalms. Um, I want to, I want us to read both of those in their entirety, and I want you to notice as we do how they're bookended together. They're both bookended by these blessed is the, you know, blessed is statements. It's called the beatitude. You may know these from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Whenever someone uh, says, blessed is the so-and-so, it's like saying, this is someone who's really living the good life. This is a flourishing state of being that, that's being pointed to. Um, happy is the man who's like this. So, would someone read Psalm 1 for us? And then, right after that, someone reads Psalm 2. Yeah, Chinwe you got Psalm 1, and then Matt Boyd, you got Psalm 2?
1: Yes. Is the Son, he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in
0: him. Thank you. So you see this, blessed is the man who Psalm one is devoted to the Word of God. That's kind of what Psalm one is saying. Blessed, happy. This is the life that's really living, is devotion to the Word of God. And then Psalm two ends with this happy and flourishing is the one who takes refuge in the Son, the anointed Son, the Messiah. So there's this comprehensive picture of the the good life that Psalms is laying out this vision for us is one who's devoted to the Lord, specifically to his word and to his anointed king. Um, These are massive themes in the Psalms, the Lord ruling his people and especially ruling by means of the anointed king. We have these happy statements, blessed, yes, the good life. And then we go right into Psalm 3 and it's like live fire. Suddenly there's bullets flying over your head. Because he says, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And if you're familiar with the early Psalms, three really through, um, again, this like maybe the first 70, 72 Psalms, there are a lot of David there. There's a lot of being chased by enemies, being oppressed by the wicked. And so we start to realize very quickly that this idea of being blessed is not this, it's not this uh, over-realized sense of, of utopia and heaven on earth. Um, it's, it's in the midst of, persecution in the midst of of facing the wickedness of the world and of enemies and waiting on the lord sometimes in very desperate circumstances uh that is compatible and often is the same time as being one of these psalm one and psalm two people who uh, are taking refuge in the lord and his anointed and uh, devoted to his word uh the other end of the psalms uh we won't look there but for 146 through 150 there are this explosion of praise every one of those starts with praise yahweh praise the lord and there's a lot of that. Just praise him, praise him. It's all over those last five psalms. So that's kind of the bookends of the, of the book. Um, now, in between, you may have heard of the, the books the books of the psalms. You know, there's five books. If you read through them, every once in a while, you'll hit a place where it says, like, book two. Or book one, you see at the beginning of Psalm 1. Maybe you just have completely ignored these and never noticed them. Maybe, uh, maybe you have noticed them. There are five books. I have them in your handout listed, the, the ranges, like where each book is. So the first book is, is Psalms 1 to 41. The second is Psalms 42 to 72. Book 3 is 73 through 89. Book 4 is 90 through 106. And Book 5 is 107 to 150. And if you, uh, you know, scholars, you kind of pay attention and say, like, what, what's going on? What are the, the relationships, like the themes in each one and the relationships between them? If you read carefully um, and thoughtfully, some have noticed that there's sort of an implied narrative. Of course, the Psalms aren't narrative in themselves, but there's sort of an implied narrative of what's being reflected that that reflects the old, part of the Old Testament storyline. Um, so books 1 and 2, so Psalms 1 through 72, again, there's a lot of David in here. Most of these say of David uh, in the, the heading. We'll talk about the headings in a moment. Um, but they're really they feature the prayers of the anointed David taking refuge in God. There's a lot of that in the first two books. The anointed king or king to be David taking refuge in the Lord. Um, it ends with Psalm 72, which is, which is this uh, celebration of the ideal Davidic king, Solomon, and how great his reign. It's like, it's like may his reign be. It's like this ideal picture of the son of David and how great his rule might be in uh, fulfillment of God's promises to David, he would give him a son to reign forever. And so this, the high hopes of like, you know, it, it's, it says of Solomon at the beginning, and it's saying, oh, the high hopes of the Davidic line in 72. It's kind of the climax of this part. Well, we know what happens in the Bible storyline. Hopes are very high with the beginning of Solomon's reign. We have a temple, we have wisdom, we have riches. What happens? Solomon turns a bad corner, right? We learn about this in the beginning of 1 Kings, uh, that he... He marries a lot of foreign wives. They lead him into foreign gods. And the wheels start falling off of the Davidic line. So Psalm 73 to 89 get really, really dark. Because what's happening, it's like this reflection of, uh-oh, the, the Davidic line is starting to decline. And really the story of, of most of First and Second Kings is this decline that ends in exile. And so there's a lot of, Lord, why have you forsaken your people? And there's a lot of this kind of lament in the third book of the Psalms, reflecting things are not looking good for your purposes among your people. Um, And then book four reaffirms the Lord's eternal reign as the the hope of his covenant people. The Lord reigns. Uh, It's funny that the fourth book starts at Psalm 90, which is the one by Moses, which is very interesting. It's only, it's, I mean, it's probably the oldest Psalm written. We don't know when all of them were written, but it was by Moses. And it's it's extolling the eternal reign of God and is saying, well, things are looking bad here among us, among our kings, but the Lord reigns. And that, that has never changed and it never will change. Book five uh, is kind of calling once again, Lord, regather your people, restore us, restore us from exile, complete your purposes in us for salvation of Israel and of the whole world. Um, these are very broad strokes, so um, you won't always, it won't always be super clear at every, at every point that this is what's going on. But I would say keep these in your back pocket as you read through the Psalms and as you look at individual Psalms and kind of meditate on how, how do we see this implied storyline being reflected. But one of the valuable things about looking at it this way is helping us see that on the one hand the Psalms are timeless. They're wonderful examples of relating to God, but they're not detached from the big story in time of what God is doing with his people. And there's this uh, it, it's sort of the commentary, the devotional commentary on the ups and downs of the fortunes of God's people. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hope-filled story. It's a depressing story. But ultimately, it, it, we know that there's a, that an arrow. As the Old Testament ends, there's an arrow pointing to a greater hope, pointing to a greater David to come who will fulfill these promises and these, these hopes and desires for the Lord to establish His saving rule among his people. So, so the Psalms kind of leave us going, let's see what God's going to do to fulfill his purposes. Any uh, any questions or thoughts about the structural stuff about the Psalms? Yeah, Paul? set up?
2: Mm
0: hmm. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is there a certain I mean, we can't know all of what God is intent, I mean, I'm sure the depths are beyond fathoming, and we could keep meditating and studying and and reflecting why is it ordered like this. But there is a really deep kind of Davidic centeredness of the Psalms that does get reflected there. And again, it's pointing to a greater David to come. The whole picture, the whole shape of the whole thing points to a greater David. Um, And that's what the Old Testament story does. I mean, it doesn't start with David. It starts earlier. But David becomes the sort of the... The vessel for God's purposes and, and promises for his, his, his people and so we have this, uh, this, this high you know, promises and hopes this, this very depressing historical development and then this sort of God where, what are you going to do uh, in the future to establish your reign um, so I don't know if that answered but it, it does focus our attention on David in a big way and then the New Testament authors will often draw on that in their application of the Psalms to Christ
2: why you know the, probably the oldest psalm, like you said. Why was there? Why not Psalm three? One? Why, yeah. Why was it Psalm One or Psalm Two or Psalm? Yeah, three?
0: yeah. So it's yeah, it's clear that it's not chronologically ordered. It, there's something, there's something theological and something yeah, there, there's something very editorially intentional about the shape of the psalms, um, and it, it's something that could I mean we it, it could handle a lot of our of our consideration and meditation. Um, yeah, yeah, Aaron. And maybe you mentioned it. The the ordering of the psalms mm-hmm. that that is going back to the way the Hebrews had ordered it because I know yeah. sometimes our order is different. Yeah, that's a good question. The ordering, um, and and we yeah the 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 individual psalms were written over a long period of time. Again, going back to Moses, there's one that seems to have been written after the exile. So we have from Moses to during and and even after the exile, um, written over a long period of time by some of the authors, you know, David and a number of other named authors, and probably a lot we don't have named, don't know. Um, It was compiled at some point into its final form as a book, and um, we don't know when. Again, it was probably after the last, and there may have been collections being made over time, but the final form we have was compiled after the last psalm was written, so probably post-exile. And we don't know who did that, but that, that final form of the book is the book as as um, it's always been. There's been a little bit of uh, question of some, some psalms, like two psalms in a row being combined. There, there have been like some ancient versions where there's two were combined and then these two were split. It's very minor stuff. Mass- in, majorly in terms of the order of the books, it's been very stable. And uh, the different order, Aaron, that you're talking about, I think may be more true at the level of the, the canon. So the orders of the books of the Old Testament, there's a, a very different Hebrew order Versus what we have in our Bible. I, I last time I gave you a handout that showed that, but within the Psalms, it's pretty stable. It's five books. Um, I think so. Yeah, the five book thing. That's a good question. I'm not too clear on the history of the five book thing. I think it was pretty clearly by Jesus' time, uh, it was that way, uh, and and it, you know by that time it was a, a accepted canonical book uh, in the in the, the scriptures. Yeah. Part of our doctrine of inspiration needs needs to include not only the writing of each part, but whoever edited and compiled it, and and this is the book we have. You know, we don't know what all led to that, but we know it's the word of God as we have it. Uh, it, It's the word of man, both writers and editors, but it's the word of God at the same time. That's the doctrine of inspiration that He worked through these human authors and editors to produce the words that are the very word of God. So. I, love, I just love the New Testament and how they accept the Old Testament scriptures and say, God says, David says, God says, it's all the same. Um, and we can, we can accept it that way, too. We don't have to know all the details of the history of how it came about. Um, now, I've been referring to authorship. How do we know about authorship? Well, you may have noticed these headings. A lot of the Psalms have these headings. Um, they're called superscriptions is like the fancy word for it, but Uh, These will include things like musical directions, an authorship, uh, or or an author attributed, not in every case. A lot of them are anonymous, but there will be an author. uh, Notes about uh, genre labels, many of which we don't really know what they mean. They're just these words like according to the sheminith or something, and you're like, okay, we don't really know what all those mean. Um, And sometimes there will be notes about the context, the historical and life context in which it was written or what it was meant to be used for. Um, Blake mentioned Psalm 34. That has a a pretty long heading, but it's, uh, well, not as long. I guess I got mixed up with another one, but uh, kind of a longer one. It says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. David acted crazy so that he would be overlooked by the Philistine king, and uh, and then he wrote the psalm. So there are some like life situation notes like that in the headings. And that's kind of what helps us. We just talked about the internal structure. That's what helps us piece together some of this. Again, it helps us know where all the, like, well, not necessarily all of them. We don't know the the unlabeled ones. Some of them may have been written by David too. But it helps us to identify these clusters that are very heavily written by David in in the beginning part. Um, There are 74. We're on dating and authorship. I've already talked about a lot of this, but 74 are attributed to David. Um, and authors in the New Testament will sometimes cite these psalms and say, David wrote, David said, Mark twelve thirty six, Jesus refers to Psalm 110 and says, David's. David says. Uh, so he sees that as a Davidic, Davidic authorship. Um, there are some other authors that are named, uh, people like Asaph and the Korahites and uh, Ethan and people like that. These are Levites that were charged with leadership over the the worship in the temple. You have Solomon named a couple times, uh and Moses, we heard about Psalm 90, and then a lot of anonymous psalms. Uh, so any, any any more thoughts on these headings or the dating authorship? Answer questions. No. Um, let's talk a little bit about what the psalms are made of. They are Hebrew poetry. To engage with the psalms is to interact with the genre of Hebrew poetry. This will apply to the wisdom books we look at in future weeks here, uh, the two big keys to interpreting poetry in the Bible in the Old Testament are parallels and figurative language, or, or imagery. Uh, to understand how these, are, these two elements are working is to be well on your way to interpreting these, these poems. So uh, let's talk about parallels. Most, most verses consist of two parts. They're called cola in plural or singular, it's colon. Um, these two parts that together make a verse or a line and usually they're in parallel. There's some kind of relationship between those two parts. And there can be a wide variety of relationships between them. They can be kind of, in some way or another, kind of saying the same thing. Or, uh, and even that, there's variety. Like, uh, for instance, uh, I'm going to read a few of these. Psalm 59, part of 59.5, the second, the second half will intensify the first. So saying, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. So it's the same idea of rousing yourself to punish the nations, but it's 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 like heightening the the detail and the intensity. They can be complementary, saying largely the same thing in different ways. So Psalm ninety-five verse four, in his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. So um, it's 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 a different perspective, but saying essentially the same thing. Sometimes they're contrasts, they're opposites. So Psalm twenty verse seven. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the Proverbs have a lot of that, that contrasting parallel. If if you know the cadence of the Proverbs, there are a lot of this is like this, but that is like that, and there's usually, there's often a very strong contrast between those two sides. Um, So rather than, you know, there's people who have classified all these lists of different ways that the the two parallels can function, and if you want to get into it, you can learn all that. I I think really the, the key is just to go in asking, if you want to look carefully at a part of the psalms, to just ask, what's the relationship between the two? What, how do they seem to be functioning together? And just to ask that question and to look at it through that lens is very helpful toward gaining understanding of, of how the, how the text is working. So that's parallels. The other issue is imagery and figurative language. Now, one of the great things about poetry is that it can do a lot. So poetry can communicate propositional truth, meaning truths that you could kind of boil down facts to to boil down to bullet points, okay? The Psalms does teach that. Poetry can teach that, but it's doing so much more than that. It's not just downloading information like bullet points. It's also using imagery to do all these other things like evoking associations in our minds um, and stirring affections and inviting wonder And uh, connecting to a wide range of experiences and emotions. Poetry and the imagery of poetry has the ability to do that. That other kinds of literature can't can't do the same way. So um, I'm going to read a verse from Psalm 4. Psalm 4 verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, if we wanted to boil this verse down to a propositional bullet point, like what's the doctrinal truth that this verse is saying? What might, what might we say? I'll read it again. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What's the bullet point, doctrinal takeaway from this verse? Yeah,
1: I just I'm not sure it's the right answer, but what came through my mind was, man does not live by bread alone. Okay.
0: Okay. So man does not live by bread alone. So, there, so joy in God is is more important, maybe than than physical provision. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say God, God,
1: God satisfies more than any sort of thing that any anything we can get on
0: earth. Yeah, God satisfies more than we can, the the things that we can get on earth. You could be really like stripped down and say God gives His people great joy. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's different ways we could say it. Those are all true, and those are all true things this psalm is teaching, and they're doctrines that we can affirm and live based on and confess, but um, how does the imagery enhance our experience of reading this verse? Rather than, God did not give us a bunch of bullet points of doctrine, he gave us literature. So, how does the way it's said, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound,
1: what does that do in
0: us?
2: Yeah, Jeff? Well, it gives an example of something tangible that we I mean, here
0: our earth can relate to yeah it's it, it, it grabs something concrete we can relate to now we don't live in an agrarian society we've probably most of us have never concluded an, a, a bumper crop harvest and going oh my goodness it's so abundant this year right but it can it ties into other times maybe we've had moments where we're like wow this is going really well, like financially materially Like wow, maybe some windfall that you that you found your way to or you got a really good job that that means a huge raise or something like we were like, whoa, and you're just feeling the sense of this is really, really good. Um, so Jeff's right. It grabs at those kinds of experiences and, and it it invokes that feeling of like, man, that feels really, really good. You feel so secure, you feel so settled, you feel so hopeful. And you can imagine people, even ancient Israelites, like partying. They're like, look at this crop, you know, and they're like freaking out about how abundant it is. Like, we're not going to starve and we're going to have excess, you know, and, um, and going, that's how it is to know the Lord in your soul. And like Randy uh, and Matt said, in an immaterial way, to know, the, to, to commune with our God is like, it should be like that. It can be like that. Uh, yeah, Wilson gonna say that it sounds and feels relational, like clearly relational. Mm-hmm. Like love letters that we used to write our spouses or girlfriends when we we're like in high school mm-hmm. or something. Just it's clearly emotional and uh, yeah. relational in that sense. It's more personal that, that emotion. Yeah it's it's uh and, yeah poetry has a way to to draw our, our hearts in a way that, that is very unique. Yeah. So that's what God's often doing in the Psalms and he he does that because he's addressing us as whole creatures, not we're not just brains we're 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 emotional volitional intellectual creatures with bodies and experiences and all these things that he's he's getting a hold of us to to draw us into knowing him and worshiping him. So that's part of the joy of of, of immersing ourselves in the Psalms. Um, any other thoughts on poetry? Any other questions or thoughts on any of this poetry stuff? Yeah, Zach. Uh, are there like Somewhat common or well known examples of this sort of writing outside of the Bible? Uh, are there examples of this outside of the Bible, like in Hebrew? Yeah, I like don't know other Hebrew poets. I don't think there's a lot of ancient Hebrew literature we have outside of the Bible. Okay. okay. Maybe some later on, but no, I don't know about any poetry. That's a good question. Maybe other languages, other ancient Near East languages. That's a good question. Um, Last, we'll talk about how it relates to the Bible as a whole. Um, Last part of this section. Uh, We've talked about the storyline, sort of the implicit storyline that the Psalms are following, the David, the promises to David, the decline of the monarchy, and then this hope that's still looking forward to it. God, restore your people, restore your purposes, establish your reign. Um, Because of that, it shouldn't be surprising to find the Psalms being cited often by New Testament authors when they're, they're trying to teach us about who Jesus is. They're trying to show Jesus' identity. They use the Psalms often. It's the most often quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, Part of it is long. (laughs) It's the longest book of the Bible. But it's also um, very relevant to showing us Christ and what God is doing in sending Christ. Uh, Various authors have called it um, a compendium of all parts of Scripture uh, or a little Bible or the heart of the Bible. It really does touch on everything kind of God is doing from creation to new creation in some way in the Bible. Jesus, when he was resurrected and he met with those disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, he said that, uh, actually this is after the Emmaus encounter with, these with his 12, but he says um, that the Psalms anticipated him. In Luke 24, verse 44, he said to his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He says, there was a lot written about me in the Psalms, and it must be fulfilled. You should have known that I would have to suffer and that that I would be be raised from the dead. Uh, That was what tripped them up. They didn't think the Messiah was supposed to die and be raised from the dead. Uh, And New Testament authors will often read the Old Testament or read the Psalms the way that Jesus uh, seems to do. Uh, They cite the Psalms to teach on his royal reign. Psalms 2 and 110 get cited and quoted in that way as him being the king. Uh, Psalms about his suffering and death: Psalm 22, Psalm 31, Psalm 69. Psalms are quoted for his resurrection. The most famous example is in Acts 2 on the Day of Pentecost. Peter cites Psalm 16, uh, which he says David prophesied about Christ. That when he says, "You will not allow uh, allow me to, uh, you won't leave me in the grave and allow me to undergo corruption," but it was it was predicted that the Messiah would be raised from the dead. Uh, so there's this rich kind of they see the psalms as being very anticipatory of Christ and very much showing of what what Christ would who he'd be who he would be and what he would do. Um, for this reason, early Christians saw the psalms as Jesus' prayers, even the ones that aren't quoted. You see this pattern of interpretation and of application to Christ, and you say, "There's there's all these other psalms that you can kind of see the same way that you can." Um, and you can say, "Well, there's a historical person praying this, especially these Davidic psalms that are uh, going through oppression and persecution as a righteous person devoted to the Lord." We're not denying that there was a d- historical David that went through this and wrote this, but that how it sort of uh, foreshadows Christ in his own his own incarnation. Uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, history of Christians seeing the psalms that way, um, and we'll we'll look a little bit more at that in, in a few moments and we'll look at application to us. But any any thoughts about kind of how the, the Psalms fit in with the rest of the Bible? Let's talk about the theology of the Psalms. Um, just some big theological themes that, that keep coming up. The first one is God, the universal creator and ruler. There's a lot about just the attributes of God, first of all, just who he is. Um, Psalm 36, verses five to six. Your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O oh Lord. Uh, another, a couple others, Psalm 139 and Psalm uh, 145. So 139 and 145, both very rich in kind of just the doctrine of who God is, his attributes. Um, but it's great because it teaches all this theology about God, but in these beautifully poetic ways. It's, it's a really amazing thing. Um and then we have so not only who he is, but what he does. What does he do? Well, he made all things, and he reigns over all things that he's made. Uh, Psalm one hundred three nineteen. Can someone? Can I have a few readers? Someone to read Psalm one hundred three nineteen. Uh, hand for that one. Yeah, Paul, thanks. And then Matt Wolf, could you read uh, Psalm ninety six ten, and then two more. Terry, can you read Psalm forty seven verses three and four? and verses 8 and 9. It's there in your handout. It's a little confusing. 47, 3 to 4, and 8 to 9. And someone else, one more person, for Psalm, uh, Tom. Psalm 67, verses 4 and 5. So Psalm one oh three nineteen is about the Lord having made all things, he reigns over them. Let's
2: hear that one. I got it. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that in the Psalms. There's sovereignty reigning over all things. What about Psalm 9610? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Good, so he reigns, and not only just in some broad general sense, he reigns, he rules over the affairs of men and nations. Um, He judges the peoples. And then even more specifically, he rules over Israel, and he rules over all things for the sake of Israel. So that, that's where we get, uh, we get we see that in, um, for instance, 47, verses 3, 4, 8, and 9. So Terry. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our
1: heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly...
0: Good, so God upholds all things, uh, and he deserves, as a creator and upholder of all things, he deserves the praise and recognition of all the nations, and uh, in fact, that will be the outcome of his work, that he's promised, this work that we're anticipating, Lord, uh, establish your reign through the greater David, but there's a lot about all the nations worshiping the Lord, so Psalm 67, 4-5. to five. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for here judge
1: the peoples with equity and guide the nations. Earth. Let
0: the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Good. Thank you. Uh, Psalm 2 is big on that, too, that all the nations um, owe their loyalty and their obedience to the Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. So that's kind of God as a creator and ruler. Um, then we can get a little bit more specific and say there's also a lot about Israel, the covenant nation, in relation to God. There's these elements like the covenant that God made with Israel, the temple, Uh, where God's glory is housed among Israel and Zion and the worship that they they conduct there. Um, In Psalms, God is not just a universal king. He's a king whose reign centers on Mount Zion, which is kind of the spiritual name for Jerusalem. That's where the king is. That's where the temple is. That's where God is. It's kind of the epicenter of his presence on earth. Um, So Psalm uh, 148, 1 to 3. Can someone read that for us? Psalm 148, verses 1 to 3. Yeah, Aaron. Is that 48 or 148? Sorry, 48. 48, 48, 1 to 3. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hang on one second. That's fine. Uh, Maybe someone else could grab it. All right. Anyone there? Anyone close? Oh, yeah, Dee
1: Dee. Great is the
2: Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Within citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Thank you. So this picture of And
0: it's very poetic, this imagery is so important, this idea of a mountain, because it's like you're 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 just scraping the bottom of heaven in this place of Mount Zion. That's the idea of what Mount Zion is, this, this mountain, this where God dwells, uh, in this, this like high and holy place. Elevation, there's sort of this theological spiritual topography there. And so Zion is this place, it's beautiful, this high mountain where God reigns among his people, the city of the king. All these themes, all these theological themes are kind of converging in a text like this. Another one I know Sam Cook really loves, this probably would be on his like prison psalm list, uh, is Psalm 84. It's a great psalm, it's, it's, a, it's a great choice. But it begins with, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. It's a celebration of the goodness of dwelling with the Lord in, in his temple that he's established. Um, Others, Psalms 15 and 24, they both begin in a very similar way asking, who can ascend the the hill of the Lord? Who can go to this holy place and dwell with God? And the answer it gives is is, uh, only certain kinds of people are qualified, and it's moral qualifications. Uh, Essentially, there's a certain kind of person who's qualified to dwell with God, and and it's, it's moral requirements. And this moral requirement uh, points to the teaching of God's covenant instruction. This is another theme throughout throughout the Psalms is this idea of his law, or the the Hebrew word is Torah, which we have translated law that's a little bit deceptive in how narrow it is. We hear law and we think rules, stuff to do and not to do. Um, uh, It's broader. It's essentially this idea of teaching or instruction. That includes rules, do's and don'ts, but also includes things like wisdom and promises and things like this. Um, and there's all this. We heard Sherry talk about Psalm 119. This is his ode to the the beauty and value of God's law, which, again, is, it commands us, really, all that God has taught us, all his, his words and all that he teaches and instructs us as his covenant people. Psalm 1, we read, extols the law of God, Psalm 19 and Psalm 119. That's kind of an interesting numerical trail 119 and 119 are, are highlights extolling the, the law of the Lord and you see that reflected in sort of who can ascend the hill, who can go be with God is it's those who are devoted to his law. And that points the way to sort of a, a, an exemplary person, an exemplary figure um, who is kind of encapsulated by this king, this messianic king in relation to God. Uh, we talked about David as sort of a, a picture of this. Um, though we know the historical David was very imperfect in sin, but there's this picture being painted in the Psalms of David as this righteous one who seeks the Lord, um, of course, pointing the way to a greater David to come. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's all important. This, the, the, the way the whole story, so to speak, of the Psalms is laid out, it, it directs attention to this matter of David and God's covenant purposes through David. One author says, The question of what God is doing with the promises to David are front and center in the book Psalm 28 8 says the Lord is the strength of his people he is the saving refuge of his anointed Uh, so you have this all his people but then there's this this uh, narrowing and there's this particular he's the saving refuge of his anointed one Um, Psalm 72 I talked about earlier it extols the exemplary Davidic king uh, showing a good example of what it looks like when the Lord reigns through his anointed ruler So we have God reigns. God reigns especially in Zion, and he reigns especially, especially in this figure of the king, this anointed person that he's chosen. Um, And then you have another theme of justice and imprecation. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. So the Lord, we heard, the Lord is on his throne. He rules over heaven and earth. What do we make of injustice in the world? There is a lot of sin and evil and injustice in the world. The Psalms are very real about the rampant evil that exists in our world. Um, it's interesting, when, when Paul is is like letting out this barrage of trying to prove how sinful everyone is, in, in Romans 3, he's developing his gospel message, he has this chain of quotes, he just blah, 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 all these quotes, and they're all out of the Psalms. Like, uh, their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruined in misery, and the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Those are all out of the Psalms. So the Psalms are very... Uh, very real about evil in the world. Well, we know that God reigns in justice and righteousness. Uh, Psalm 97, two: righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And we have calls for God to be just, to exercise his just reign. And one expression of that desire is this category of imprecatory psalms, which simply uh, means psalms that curse or invoke uh, wish evil upon the wicked, wish harm upon the wicked. And there are especially example like psalm 58 psalm 137 and then there's there's parts of this in parts of many psalms that do this um and if we read this and we sometimes this can this can cause a little bit of trouble for us we can feel tension between these imprecatory psalms and jesus teaching for instance like in matthew 5 um 43 to 48 he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you um and we're told by Paul in Romans twelve fourteen to bless and not curse those who persecute us, um, uh, don't don't uh, return evil for evil. And so we have this New Testament ethic of love your enemies, don't don't, don't return evil on them. And you see the Psalms and they're like calling down fire on, on enemies. And we can go, oh, some have said, uh, well, imprecatory Psalms are are like distinctly of the Old Testament era. They're not applicable to the New Testament church. They're sub Christian. What do you think? Do you buy that, that? That that that's for the old covenant, but in the new covenant with this higher ethic of loving your enemies? Or is there what what else do you what other sense do you make of that category? Yeah, Matt. Our
1: enemies are. Okay. Uh, and our enemies aren't the people around us, They're who are controlling and influencing our people around us. That's Satan. Really
0: yeah. Important. That's a really important element that the New Testament does give us is that our true enemies are not people. Uh, Ephesians six twelve. Our, uh, we do not fight against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Satan and his forces. That's always the true enemy. Um, that's really important to, 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 to point that out. Yeah, uh, Aaron. And then uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Yeah. You know, we, we're we're really not to take it into our own hands. Yeah. But we'll let God. Do it. That's true, and you're quoting from. Um, well, I think it's Paul quoting somewhere else, but it's Paul in. I just read Romans twelve fourteen. In twelve nineteen, he says that, brothers, don't uh, don't avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for He says, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay." So, in not taking vengeance for ourselves, there's this waiting on the Lord to do it His way, as the just ruler, and and these prayers reflect that waiting on the Lord to do it His way. That's very true. Yeah, uh, Patty, do you have a thought? That's pretty much what I was gonna say in mm-hmm. the contrast in the old testament of having God fight our battles for us, asking him to please fight our battles for yeah. us and, and acknowledging he's the only one who can. Yeah. And the New Testament saying, But interpersonally it's our job to be in peace. That's really well said. Yeah. We we trust the Lord to fight our battles, we wait on him to fight our battles. And it's weird, but yeah, at the same time we are to make peace and try to be try to truly love our enemies. Uh we have to be able to do both when we're, there is a way to do both. And I'd say, look at Jesus. He, uh, I think he prayed like these imprecatory prayers in his life. We have him going off to pray. And again, there's so much new Testament drawing from the Psalms. It's kind of the, the script of Jesus life, but you see him, um, you see him being, loving his enemies, washing Judas's feet and so on and calling him a friend, friend, uh, when he comes to confront him in the garden. Um, but yeah, those are all good points. Um, that you've anticipated a lot of what I was going to say, which is great. So yeah, evil forces are real. Um, and sometimes for a long time, I'd read the Psalms, all these complaints about enemies and go, this doesn't apply to me. No one's chasing me to kill me. Until I finally realized what Matt said about Ephesians six twelve. Every day I wake up and I read a Psalm, like I am entering a war zone. There is a real enemy trying to, to plot and work for my downfall. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So the reality of opposition that is reflected in the Psalms is every bit as real for us in Christ spiritually. Sometimes he uses people to do this. Sometimes he doesn't. The real issue is it's always Satan in his forces. So we are in a war zone, and God has called us to combat evil by using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and praying at all times in the Spirit. He says that there in Ephesians 6.18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. That's how we conduct this battle. Um, similar to what we said about Romans 12.19, imprecatory psalms are not personal and petty they're a, they're a cry for justice they're God centered and it's saying it's leaving it to the wrath of God it's a way of um, you know and again it's, it's, it's something to struggle through in our experience but on the one hand being able to truly love our enemies and, and the one hand, on the one hand pray good for them pray mercy may they come to know Christ may they come to know his mercy and repent and then at the same time pray but God have your justice have your, pour out your wrath And it's we can pray both. We can say, Lord, if 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 your if your if your will for them is not mercy and repentance and forgiveness, then do the do the right thing, Judge of the Earth, do do what's right. And um, it is good that He. It's hard for us, but it is good that He pours out His wrath on the wicked. And so it is a God centered way of praying. It's not just somebody slights you and offends you, and it's like, oh yeah, you know, (laughs) I'm gonna go. It's People are sinning against God uh, and, and me in, in sinning against God. And so we're calling for God to do what's right. Um, and then it, it's, you know, as, as, much, as hard as it might be to think about imprecation, I would say it's even harder to consider if we, if we didn't have this category, um, this idea of, like, we, we shouldn't want God to uphold the moral order of, of the world he's made uh, should we not want that? Should we not pray for that, for him to have to to, to have justice? Um, it's good that people reap what they sow. It's good that the judge of the earth will do right. Um, we don't want to be gratuitous and merciless in that because God loves to save. He loves to pour out mercy on the wicked. We should love when he does that too, but we should also be able to say it is good that God does that. Um, it's a way of... You know, Jesus modeled in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's like us saying that to this particular case of evil. Your will be done on earth, your kingdom come. Um, also, one final thought is that often the wicked are do, doing their wicked things at the expense of others, at the expense of the, the needy and the oppressed and often the those who have less power. So it's, it's a way of being merciful. Often what the wicked people are doing is they're hurting other people, and it's a way of saying, God, don't let this continue. Don't let them keep doing that, either to me or to other people that they're victimizing. Um, One example is Psalm 3-7, which says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And that, I mean, early on, that sounded kind of gratuitous to me. Like, man, breaking teeth, that sounds so violent, so kind of ugly, until I realized the imagery here is that the teeth, the imagery is that the enemy is like a ferocious beast whose teeth are his weapons for victimizing others. You see this, for example, in Psalm 58, six. That, that term is like, his, it's like, take out his teeth because he's a roaring lion. So you realize that what the psalmist is saying is defang Satan's agents in the world so that they can't keep on victimizing others. Um, it's a way of saying, God, do what's right. You see, you see this is happening. Often the wicked seem to be getting away with it. And who's going to stop them? No one's able to stop them. We, we trust the Lord. He will. He will do what's right. And he will bring, bring it up upon their heads. So that, there's, so imprecatory psalms are, are valuable and important. It's an important category to be able to put that in God's hands so that we can continue loving our enemies while waiting on him to do what's right. Did I see a hand, Christina, earlier? But I was
1: thinking, yeah. I was thinking like the, even our cry, of "Come, Lord Jesus," um, yeah. is an intercessory prayer, right? Because what's He going to
0: do when He yeah. comes? Yeah. yeah. But it's
1: like you know, like, and we
0: pray and desire for Him to humble hearts and bring him to repentance. Yeah. Um, but it's also we want His, His, his yeah, His kingdom to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's very true. We want Him to come. Um. Yeah. Any other thoughts on on these these? difficult, and some of them are difficult, honestly, when we have to wrestle through. But. Um, using the Psalms, so some notes about how we use them in our lives. Um, first point I just want to make is that they're good for doctrine, they're even better for doxology, which means worship. So the Psalms, like I said, there's, there's truth, there's doctrinal truth taught here, a rich treasury of it, in fact. New Testament authors, theologians today, are wise to, to, to mine deeply from the psalms in our theological formulation. But psalms are even better in their primary intended use of modeling a life of worship and prayer to God. Um, and they just excel at capturing the heights and depths of human emotion and experience. Church Father Athanasius said each psalm holds up a mirror to the human heart. And uh, it is, as the more we walk through life, I think of following the Lord and, and seeing all the dynamics of life and of our hearts, we get we more and more Go, wow, I'm so glad for these psalms. Uh, they're even better, even better than study and learning is to, to use them, to let them shape our own prayers and to imitate them. Um, they, the other, kind of next point to make is that they just um, model a Godward orientation for covenant people in every situation. We see people, God's people who are called often the righteous. There's this label, the righteous used a lot in the psalm, Psalm 112, 6 for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. We might sometimes read that and think, oh, the person who's completely blameless and doesn't do anything wrong. Well, that's not me. I can't, I can't use these prayers. Um, well, the righteous in the Psalms is someone who seeks God. Um, it's a member of his covenant people who trusts him. Um, the righteous are people who are pursued by strong enemies and they depend on God in their trouble. Uh, there are, You have some Psalms, like I love Psalm 38 where the person's like, I'm righteous, save me God, but then he confesses sin. Psalm 38, 18, he says, I know my sin, <laughs> but I still don't deserve to be treated this way by, by my enemies. Um, they know they're sinful, they they depend on God's mercy. We have, you know, David's Psalm of penitence in Psalm 51 that Paul mentioned earlier It's very real about sin. Um, the righteous are people who are devoted to God. The king and his word. We saw that in the introduction, Psalms 1 and 2. And um, because, as we've seen, God's people go through the value of the shadow of death in real life, and and sometimes times are very hard and very bleak. Uh, Psalms model prayers that open up very candidly to God, and you have this category of lament. There's so many lament psalms, or lament sections of psalms. Uh, We talked especially about, you know, book 3, where we're like, man, the wheels are falling off and the, the Davidic line is failing and we're, we're going into exile and there's all this, there's a lot of lament in that. In that. There's lament elsewhere too um, because Psalms are very real about uh, what does it mean to be the Lord's people in this age? It's ugly. Some, it's, it's often ugly. It's often desperate. It's often tearful. And it can really pop, maybe some, some of us can have a picture of what the Christian life is supposed to look like and mature Christianity needs to be like this superficial, always smiling, always everything's good, everything's happy. Um, and sometimes, I, by God's grace, I don't see that here, but there can be church cultures that implicitly tell us that. Like we're all, we're all best when we're, everything's great. You know, we're always excited about everything. I'm so pumped, you know. <laughs> like every Sunday you show up and you're like, yeah. Um, the Psalms really pop that bubble in showing us, no, there's a place for tears, there's a place for desperation. A prominent place for that. There's a lot of that in the Psalms. There's a true-to-life grittiness. The people of God need modeled and acknowledged about our lives. Um, uh, Regarding application to us, I want to think about union with Christ. Uh, This is part C of of your outline here. Uh, We've talked about the righteous person, often associated with David. And we've seen how the, the whole Psalm book is pointing forward to a greater David. And the New Testament authors pick up on that. Christian readers have often, have from, from long ago, have figured out this is one of the keys to applying the Psalms to ourselves. Um, so you have the Church Father Augustine in his exegesis of the Psalms. He often draws on this principle of looking at the, the church as the body of Christ. You see this like in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, that the, the church is the body, Christ is the head, and we're baptized into him, we're in spiritual union with him. And so there's this deep spiritual unity between Christ and his body so that we share life together. We share experiences. And what belongs to him belongs to us by virtue of our union with him. Um, so sometimes we, like, like, thinking about Psalms that we know are like they could function as prayers of Christ. Um, thinking about the, you know, what does Jesus say on the cross? He quotes a psalm on the cross. Do you guys know what he says? It's called the cry of dereliction. What do we call it? Psalm 22, verse 1. You remember what he
1: says? (laughs) Yeah, my God, my God, why have
0: you forsaken me? He quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. He's probably alluding to the whole psalm and claiming it and saying, this is where I'm at, this struggle with God, have you forsaken me? Um, And we might read this verse and think, like, well, this is David. It's of David. He's running from Saul or something like that. He's desperate. And we might think, well, does this apply to me? Well, Am I like David? How, how much am I like David or how much am I different than David? And we're just kind of asking the question of, is my life like David's? That might be kind of what we do with applying the Psalms. Um, what's wrong with that is we're kind of we're kind of a, like, what have, what have you and I to do with David ultimately? Like the, the, ultimately, David's experience doesn't necessarily have to match with ours. The important step we're skipping is that David is foreshadowing Christ. And Christ is the one we're in union with. We're the the body, and he's the head. So what's happening is, three things are happening at once, okay? David is in some historical situation writing and praying this psalm. It's real for him. But at the same time, secondly, more ultimately, it's pointing the way to Christ and his sufferings. It's anticipating Christ and his sufferings, and he's going, I'm the real Psalm 22 guy saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Um. And therefore, we who are in Christ, you have this this idea where the body, where the head goes, there goes the body. You have Jesus saying this all the time in the Gospels, like, they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. That's in the upper room. It's the idea that if you follow Christ, you're sharing everything with him. He shares his righteousness. uh, He takes your sin upon himself. And you follow after him in his experiences in this world. So we will have David-like and ultimately Christ-like experiences, not just because we're we happen to just want to read the, the, these old these old ancient prayers, but because we're in Christ, they're ours in Christ. They belong to the church because we're in Christ, and they're ultimately songs about Christ. And so um, as an exercise on your own to kind of think through some of this, I would say look at Psalm 30. Uh, Psalm 30 is really fascinating. Imagine David, it says of David, imagine David saying it, which he did. <laughs> and then imagine Christ saying it about his death and resurrection, and then imagine, uh, given, given that you could put this prayer in the lips of Christ, and that he died and rose for you, and that his death is your your death to sin, and, and your his resurrection is your uh, resurrection to new life. How how is Psalm thirty yours in Christ? I would say that could be a good exercise for just thinking through how some of this might work. So I'm not denying the historicity of it. I'm just saying. The way the whole Bible works is it's 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 foreshadowing the Christ in whom this belongs to us. It's ours because it's Christ's, and you see, there's much richer uh, uh, the way that this these things expand and in in insofar as they they point out Christ to us. So that was a little deep. Any any thoughts or questions about that that point of how it applies to us in Christ? Um. Finally, just praying the psalms. Some advice about praying the psalms. And if you've always seen, I finally just commend you. Pray the psalms. Use them. First of all, just gain general familiarity with them. And the more you do, the more they'll just influence your heart and your patterns of devotion to the Lord. Again, normalizing things like lament and complaint, very honest uh, transparency with God. I also love and really commend, open up a psalm and let it guide your prayer today, like in that moment. You can open it up, read it and just say, what do I see about God? What do I see about uh, my maybe resonating with my own circumstances and emotions? What do I see about Christ and his work for me that's being anticipated or about the spiritual warfare that I face? What's a hook sort of that I can grab my own prayer onto and, and pray this back to God in kind of a creative, adaptive way? There's always something. Sometimes you're reading and it's like, this is talking about me right now. And sometimes it's a little harder to connect with, but there's always going to be something that we can grab onto and say, we can turn this back to God in praise or thanksgiving or lament or complaint or, or what have you. So I, I And it's sort of an art more than a science. I can't just say, there's the 10 steps to praying the Psalms. But just immerse yourself in them and um, let them lead you back to God in prayer as one of Christ's people. Um, and and it's a beautiful thing. There's, there's a lot to pray. There's a lot of diversity in our prayers that it can it can introduce. So any final, before we close in prayer, and it's kind of abrupt, but any final uh, thoughts or questions about the Psalms? I'm glad to interact more if you have more kind of uh, involved uh, questions. But, yeah, Paul.
2: Pastor Tim, would you, would you say that, this is your opinion, would you say that the book of Psalms is the most important book in the Old Testament?
0: Is it the most important book in the Old Testament? I think Origenesis. I could say that. Origenesis. Yeah. If I was a Bible translator and I had to just start with one, I probably would translate Psalms. Yeah, I'd probably the most important book.
2: And the other thing I have, uh, when you are mentioning uh, kind of the two quote-unquote underrated psalms that aren't talked about much, or you mentioned Psalm 15 and Psalm 19. If you want to check your credentials at the door, you read Psalm 15. Uh-huh. Because that is an eye-opener. Yeah, yeah. And then Psalm 19, the first six verses talk about the greatness of God, the, making the expanse of the heavens. Yeah. Then it goes into the Word. Then it goes into... Telling how powerful the word and life changing the word of God. Is. Yeah, and then it ends with Psalm with verse fourteen when it says, "I can read it real quick." Mm-hmm. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my Rock and my Redeemer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: A beautiful verse because a lot of theologians have preached multiple. Uh, messages just on that song. Mm-hmm. Because the first six verses rich, yeah. are kind of totally different than the mm-hmm. the next seven and then the other last yeah. couple.
0: Sometimes there's a lot of wisdom to be gained in meditating. Why are these together? You know, there's right. something they're collectively saying to us that isn't immediately obvious. Yeah. Great. Let's, let's close in prayer. God, we do pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. You're our Savior. You're the rock and refuge that we uh, find salvation in through your Son Jesus, and you have gifted us so richly with this book of psalms we pray that we would uh they would get into our bones that we would saturate in them and and live uh out of them and pray and sing them and uh and uh, that we would find you to be uh our god who who is everything you you call yourself in this book of psalms uh, our faithful refuge uh we thank you for this time may it bless each one who heard and we pray in jesus name amen